before we start today, or before I start today, I just want to tell you about two things that are on my heart um, as part of our church. The first is children's ministry. Um, I've gotten, I've always been passionate about children's ministry, maybe now because I have a grandchild, I'm even more passionate about it. But um, in our culture, I've said this and I'm going to continue to say it, we are fighting a lot about what our children are learning and what our children are being taught. And, um, you know, being a guy that's part of the community, I understand where both sides are coming from. But if you're sitting here this morning, and it doesn't matter what side of the debate you're on, I think that all of us would agree that it's kind of hypocritical for us to be screaming in school board meetings when we have, and this is just the truth, over the last few weeks, there's been somewhere between 75 and 85 kids upstairs just in children's ministry every Sunday. If, if we're not focused on what God has given us into this community to teach these children about who God is, the levels of anxiety and, um, and, and night terrors and worry all of this whole generation is experiencing. And they show up here on Sunday and they're just looking for somebody to care, some adult to care, some kind of oasis in a desert of judgmentalism and social media and all the rest. And I just sense that this church could be for all of those kids, not just our own kids, but the kids in this community, where incrementally on Tuesday nights in our kids' clubs and on, on Sunday nights in our youth group ministries, sometimes up to half of the kids are not church kids. They're coming and rolling in here and going, there's something here that's different. And so Hank, Hank said that verse about um, when Jesus was sitting there, uh, all, all of the, the religious folks, the children were running up to Jesus, and, and, and the religious folks were often keeping them away because they weren't considered important enough to waste Jesus' time with. And Jesus goes, no, 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 do not keep the children away from me. And, and we've heard that verse a lot. I think if you're a believer, you've heard that verse a lot. And so we kind of look at it as, oh, don't do anything to keep them away, but I think that it's equally as important to look at the other side, which is what are you doing to draw them to him? And so I just want to encourage you, if you're not involved either in children's ministry or youth ministry, get involved. There's nothing happening right now that is more important than what's happening upstairs right now. Those children need to know God, and the only way it's going to happen is if the people in their church care enough to make sure that we don't keep them from him. So I want to I thank all of you that serve up there. I want to thank you on behalf of my children who grew up in that ministry and who were all following Jesus. I want to thank you for my granddaughter who's starting in that ministry. And I want to point you towards mhcc.life. If you're not involved, please, please hear the call of Christ and get involved with our children. Second, I'm excited to announce this. Many years ago, as the pastor of this church, it occurred to me that um, we were a Christian Missionary Alliance church. And uh, we were good at being allies, um, in some sense, to missionaries, but we were not all of that missional. In fact, we had hardly ever done anything missional. So in a year where we had, Mendham had been rated one of the 200 wealthiest towns in America, we decided, several of us, that we were going to find the complete opposite, and we were going to try to be the hands and feet of Christ, to actually not just know that we should care for the least of these, but that we should go and be Christ to the least of these. So we found a garbage dump community in Guatemala City. For the last 16, 17 years, we have been going there every summer except for one in the pandemic, um, two in the pandemic. Um, last year, we went back for the first time. I've spent uh, every year of the last 17 other than those two. Actually, I might even go during one of them um, down there. Uh, my children have been kind of raised going down there. 
it is the best thing I have other than following Christ and marrying my wife. Let me clean that up because this one's going out on video. Love you, honey. Um, other than those couple of decisions, going to Guatemala City has changed my life more than any other thing. Um, it is what I call like a tune-up for the reality of the world situation. Every time I go there, I, I go, oh my gosh, I've fallen into some stupor. Now I realize what the situation for most people in the world is. We're going back again this summer. Um, we are going to rebuild this ministry, and we will be known by the way we love those, those that are on the fringe of uh, society. And so if you have not gone, if you would like your life changed, if you would like to see what Jesus was talking about, I want to invite you to join me and hopefully lots and lots of others. Prior to COVID, we were taking 150 people a summer to Guatemala City. We're going to have an information meeting. These trips will be the first three weeks of July. Um, encourage you to take one of those weeks and go with us. The information meeting will be coming up on March 19th after church. It commits you to nothing other than hearing about it. March 19th after church. I want to encourage you to be there. You'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. Back to remodeling relationships. Today is the last talk. For some of you, this has been incrementally uncomfortable, so you're going, thank you, Jesus. August 1st, 1955, Life Magazine. Remember Life Magazine? They published an article entitled Throwaway Living. That article, that issue, is generally cited as the source for a term that's become popular over the last decade or so called throwaway society. You and I, people of my generation, and, you know, I'm getting up there now, uh, people younger than me have grown up in, we are steeped in the ethos of the throwaway society. There was a time, and heck, it was for the time for all of human history, save for the last 50 or 60 years, that when something was broken, you either fixed it, right, or you saved up to have it fixed. I remember when I was a kid, things would break, and we couldn't afford to fix them, but, but we'd be saving up to get those things fixed, right? Today, it's not that way anymore, right? Almost everywhere, without exception, dishwasher, television, washing machine, if it's broken, it's almost always the economically prudent solution to just throw it out and get a new one, right? I mean, in fact, the, the dawn of mass production in the last century, manufacturers actually began to adopt a philosophy that's called, you can do the research on this, planned obsolescence. We create things with the plan that they will become quickly obsolete, or less desirable over any certain amount of time. Uh, several years ago, my, my mom, uh, my mom, she does what all moms do, right? She goes on Facebook and checks her bank account and things like that, right? Doesn't do a lot of other heavy computer lifting. And so I bought her a Chromebook. And this year she called me um, at Christmas time. She said, I need another computer. And I said, well, what's wrong with your computer? And she goes, it expired. I said, what? C computers don't expire. And, you know, I love my mom. She's not all that technically savvy. For that matter, either am I. But I was fairly certain computers don't expire. Did you all know Chromebooks expire? There's actually an expiration date where it pops up and goes, this computer will no longer update. And then when you try to get into anything that wants an updated browser, she couldn't get into her bank account. It said your computer is expired. And so that's the society that we find ourselves in, right? You don't fix it or you throw it away. You, you get a new one. 
which I get it, it's exciting, right? I mean, it, who wants to fix up the old, like, you know, avocado green refrigerator when you could get a, a brand new stainless steel one for the same price? Out with the old, in with the new, that's what we say. Uh, the problem is, though, smarter people than I have realized that there's a price to be paid with this. People have studied it. Pope Francis, actually, in his second encyclical, commented on how significant this issue is. The problem is when you are steeped in the ethos of the throwaway culture, its tenants may make their way into things which were not meant to be, never meant to be disposed of and replaced. Specifically, people and relationships. In the same way that we don't fix dishwashers, right? We get rid of them and get a new one. We don't fix relationships. We end them and we look for new ones. And like our stuff, right, the, the, the less close the relationship, the, the smaller the emotional attachment to it, the easier it is to kind of just dispose of it and start over. We do it with friends. She hurt me. He disappointed me. I can't believe she votes that way. I'm so upset that he believes that. And so, you know, what do we do? Well, I, I, I put her in her place. I, I stood up for what it is that I believed in, and, and so I'm moving on it. Uh, this week, I, I had a friend that posted something on Facebook, and it had political overtones to it, and another one of her friends responded with political overtones from the other side, and this played out before the hundreds of their friends, and by the end, literally, um, the final thing was basically goodbye. We're not friends anymore. They ended their friendship on the Facebook posts. Out with the old, in with the new. It's not just friends, though. Right? This morning, there's almost no one in the room whose families have not been impacted by the fracturing of family relationships. Siblings who no longer talk to one another, aunts and uncles that you can't invite them both over for the holidays, husbands and wives who were once so close, whose, whose intimacy and love overflowed into the creation of children who can no longer even be in the same, be in the same room with those children or with that ex. Now, on a societal level, on a personal level, right, certainly it's difficult and painful. But for followers of Jesus, it's even more problematic because relationships for Jesus followers, we've been talking about this week after week, right? Relationships, that's supposed to be like our thing. That was what was supposed to identify us as followers of Jesus to the world, our relationships, the way that we loved one another, related to one another. According to Jesus, not only would it identify who we were, people would be able to look at our relationships and go, well, that must be a Christian, look at the way he loves other people. Not only that, the way we interact with one another was supposed to show the world, number one, that Jesus is who he said he is, the way, the truth, and the life. And number two, the way we love one another was supposed to inform them in regards to how God loves them. Man, I, I never understood how God loved me till I saw the way that those Christians love people. Here's the interesting thing, right? I want to be as blunt as possible. When our lives are filled with broken relationships, it's not just a personal issue. It's actually an issue for God. God has a problem with it. He cares. It, and here's why, because it impacts him, and it impacts its kingdom, and it impacts his other children, and, and, and it spreads. It may be the chief place where we as believers are open to the charge that the world has labeled Jesus followers with, right? You hypocrites. 
You say one thing. You, you espouse one thing. You celebrate this one thing, who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And then you go and you live completely different in, in your relationships with others. I, I want to show you what I mean. And again, this is for those of you in the room this morning. What I'm going to be teaching is radical and strange and weird. I know that. And so this is really, I'm encouraging this for people who believe that Jesus is who he said he is. If you're not there yet this morning, I think, though, the principles still apply. Because there is no doubt that you have a broken relationship or two in your life that needs repair. For you, these steps might seem even more strange or illogical than they would for those of us that are trying to follow Jesus. But here's what I would hope. As you reflect on them, and as we all reflect on these steps this morning, I hope that all of us, believer and non-believer alike, would get an appreciation for who Jesus is and what he did and how he loved us. And so it's with that in mind, how he loved us, we've been using that as our model for how we love others, uh, our model for relationships, right? It was just for that reason, because he was thinking about how he loved us, that the Apostle Paul wrote some pretty famous words to the church of Corinth. Here's how they started. He said, for Christ's love, what does it do? It compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Here's what Paul is saying, that Christ's love was expressed for us in his willingness to die on our behalf. The sinless one for the sinful many, right? All of our sin, the justice of a loving God that was due, all of our trespasses are borne by Jesus on the cross in his death. Paul says that when Jesus died for our sins, it wasn't just Jesus that died, though. In a very real way, Paul says that you are, in a sense, baptized into that death. And so your old selves, your old ways, your old patterns, the old man, sometimes the, flesh, the, the, the scriptures refer to it as our flesh, our unregenerate souls, our broken, um, rebellious natures, they died that day, too. As Christ died, so did our old selves and ways and natures. And as Christ was raised from the dead, so too are those who trust in him. You are imputed, given a new nature, a new life source, grafted into the vine of life. He goes on to explain that if that's true, if the old person died and there's this new thing in us, what would that compel us to do? We're compelled by this to do what? So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once re regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old is gone. The new is here. Such a famous verse. If you've heard that verse before, can I ask you to raise your hand? If, you, if you've heard it, raise your hand. Pretty famous verse, right? If your kids, I remember my kids used to sing it. If anyone is in Christ, he is a... Yeah, a couple of you know it, right? I mean, you know, my singing was a little better, but that's all right, right? Um, we sing the second part of that verse really well, but we ignore the first part, right? You are this new, you are this new creation, right? But if you are, you will, as a new creation, regard nobody, and nobody meant no one. You won't regard anybody from a worldly point of view. You won't regard, you won't look at anybody the way you used to look at them. That's what Paul's saying. Once you become new, right, 
You shouldn't see people the way you used to see them. And what is that? What does Paul mean when he says a worldly point of view? Well, I, I think what he means is that when you see the person, when you, when you see them, their, their value, their worth, their personhood, you see them, a worldly point of view means you see all those things as being equal to the sum total of their actions, what they've done. For the Jews, right? Paul himself was a Jew. He wrote about this in other places. There were, the Jews would say, from a worldly point of view, there were Jews and there was everybody else. The Gentiles and the pagans. The unregenerate. For us, right, we look at people and there are good people and bad people. People because of what they've done, right, where they've been. They are either worthy of our attention, our presence, our friendship, our love, and then there are those because of what they've done, where they've been, who are clearly not. Then he gets even more specific about what the love of God compels us to do, right, in regards to these people. This new nature that we have, what it compels us to do. If we no longer see people the way we once did, what would that compel us to do? Well, he says, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I'm about to teach you something crazy. It'll be a fun little card trick at home for you to play, I think. I don't care how long you've been going to church, what your mama taught you when she taught you how to pray, what you heard in CCD class or Sunday school. Some of you have heard 10,000 sermons, and some of you today is your very first sermon. But I think I'm about to blow your mind a little bit. If you came in this morning, first time maybe, thousandth time, if when you came in, I just gave you a little buck slip of paper, and I collected them after five minutes, and it just said on that little piece of paper, Jesus came to earth and lived and died so that I might be, I would bet, 100%, church person or not, even if you're not a church person, you've heard the answer to that question, right? You've heard it before. Jesus died, what would everybody say? So that I might be forgiven. Forgiveness, that's the ultimate kind of Christian trump card, right? Except Paul would say, no, it's not. That's not it. It's way, way better than that. That's not, that's not, that's not the only reason Jesus came. It's much bigger than that. Jesus did not come so that you simply might be forgiven. Forgiveness was never the end game for Jesus. For Jesus and for his followers, forgiveness is merely a tool. Forgiveness is not the goal. It is not the end game. Forgiveness is a means to the real goal and the real ends. Why did Jesus come? For reconciliation. To restore something to renew something. Jesus forgives us, yes, but it does not end there. He forgives us for a point, for a reason. God does not sit up in heaven and go, huh, fine, all right, I forgive them. I forgive them. You know what? I, I feel sorry for them. I just, I feel bad for them, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to forgive them. I'm not going to be angry with them anymore. I'm not going to let them hurt me anymore. I'm not going to carry around all the baggage. Fine. I just don't want anything to do with them. I mean, heck, you could almost hear the voice of God if that was the case from, from the mountaintops going, fine, I forgive you. But that's not our story, right? Jesus doesn't, God doesn't go, fine, I forgive you, now beat it. Forgiveness isn't the end. It was the means to something so much greater. 
to be reconciled to God, to be brought back home into, into intimacy with him, relationship with him, closeness with him. And he then goes, because that's what Jesus has done for you. Forgiveness was just a means to this intimacy, to restoration of the relationship. You know what that makes you? He goes, now I want you to be ministers of forgiveness. No. He goes, here's your ministry. You are to be reconcilers. To be a follower of Jesus does not mean we forgive. I mean, it does. But forgiveness for us is a means to a much better end, to reconciliation, to restoration. Is it always possible? No. We're going to talk about that in a couple minutes. Is it always always advisable? No. I'm not sure anybody would tell you that you should reconcile with somebody who's physically or emotionally abused you. Should you forgive them? Absolutely you should, mostly because of how that forgiveness would benefit you, right? But it doesn't mean you sign back up for more of the same, right? But again, hear me on this now. I know when we talk about these things, because they're radical, people go, what about this? There are exceptions to this. But the the general principle is that we are people who fix what's broken. We don't throw it away and start over. God didn't do that with you. Don't you see that? He didn't just walk away and go, well, that was a big mistake. Let me move over here. Is it easy? No. You ever try to fix a relationship? The answer is usually no, (laughs) right? Because, I mean, who wants to do that? It's awkward, painful. It hurts. Puts you kind of out there. I mean, one reason is, is one reason we have a hard time reconciling relationships. I think about this: is have you ever seen a model? Have you ever seen it done? I mean, it's almost never done. Once it's over, it's over, baby. Right? I mean, how many of us could look back in our parents' lives and see people or aunts and uncles that they were friends with that now they're not friends with? Very few of us go, "Oh, I remember this one time." Yeah, my Uncle Bobby, he really betrayed my mother, and my mother was relentless on reconciling that relationship. Most of us, our experiences, and we never saw Uncle Bobby again. Right? And so, friends, this is why I'm here today. To give you the John Eisman five-point plan to reconciling relationships, are you ready? You shouldn't be, because if I was going to give you the John Eisman plan for reconciling relationships, it would be a very bad plan. It would suck. It would be mostly about teaching people that they were wrong and they owe me an apology. So we're not going to go with the John Eisman five-point plan. We are going to go back to what we've been talking about since day one. We are going to model restoring relationships off of the Jesus model. And so I want you to pull, everybody's got one. I want you to pull that relationship that is fractured or broken. I want you to put it in your mind, okay, because we're going to apply these principles. We're not just going to go, oh, wasn't that sweet? We're going to say, okay, I'm going to put that person in there. Let me see how this would work. You ready? Number one, step one in reconciling relationships, because this is our jam. This is what we do, right? This is our ministry. Step one, you go. Now, let's be honest, right? The reason the relationship that you're in, that person that that you got in the forefront of your mind right now, the reason it's broken is because of them. I understand it. You're innocent. (laughs) Right? 
You didn't deserve what's been done to you. The reason it's broken is because of what they said, how they acted, how they disappointed you. And I know how it works just like you do since it's their fault. I mean, if it was your fault, you're the bigger person. I know you would fix it. I believe that. But since it's their fault, what are you waiting for them to do? To come to you. Oh, if they, you know, look, as a Christian, I've forgiven them. And if they were to come to me, I, I would be open to restoring the relationship. Except for that's not the model. It's a completely different model, right? Think about how God reconciles his relationship to you. Who broke the relationship between man and God? Man. We break it all the time. Constantly throwing God under, under the bus and going in our own direction in our own ways, right? Who's the offended party in the relationship? God. And who made the first move towards you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He did. Paul would write, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the model, right? Which brings to context what Jesus taught during his most famous Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember this? Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Two thoughts on that, right? Jesus did not say, and you remember that you have something against a brother or a sister. You know, I really am so angry at that guy. I, God wants me to go be reconciled, so I'm going to go. No, you're fine. See, you're fine. It's his problem. You've already forgiven him. You're not carrying around any baggage. You are fine. If there's a problem in a relationship, it's him, it's her, it's not me, I'm good. But that's not what Jesus said. If they're angry or they're hurt or they're disappointed, you go, right? It's if you know that somebody's got a problem, if you know that somebody's upset, right, you go. It's not, well, I'm fine, he is the problem. Jesus made your problem his. And there's a cost to this approach. There's a cost to it. This week, I know you're going to make fun of me. And I understand, I know, you all hate him and all the rest. But anyway, Bruce Springsteen put some tickets on sale. And so like the rest of the uh, poor unwashed slobs like me, we got on Ticketmaster and tried to, uh, I had, I'd like to tell you I'm lying, but I had five computers working trying to get these tickets. Very difficult tickets to get. And uh, you got to get a code and all the rest. And when you finally get in your queue, right, the queue pops up and you're like, I got my code. I've been waiting. I got in a half hour early. I am ready. And it pops up on all five computers. Congratulations. You are 2,000 plus in the queue. 2,000 plus. Every, all five computers. I was over 2,000 behind on all five. Five. And I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting, and it, it, you'd watch the computer screens all go. You know, I'm watching my phone, and it would go down. You're now 1, 000, number 1,784 in queue. And it worked its way down over a half hour, right? And after some time, it got really close. This is what it was like to bring your gift to the altar in Jerusalem. You didn't just walk in with your gift. Oh, hey, I was just walking by. I thought, God, I'd drop off a gift, Right? No, no, this was commanded. It was ceremonial, and everybody was taking pilgrimages, thousands and tens of thousands of people, back to Jerusalem to offer this gift. And you didn't just get there and walk in. You waited in line. 
hours, days to hold your place. And Jesus goes, oh, you got up to number one in the queue? By the way, have you given any thought? Is there anybody upset with you? Yeah, I think you should leave right now and go, go get it right. What, are you kidding me, Jesus? Do you realize I'm one, t- I'm one person away from Springsteen tickets? Born to run the whole thing? I'll go after I get the tickets because I don't want to lose my place in line. I put a lot of work into this. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. You, you should go now. Right? You go now. He tells them, right? You prioritize reconciling the relationship with another over the relationship with God. At least at first blush, it seems that way, right? In fact, I would think when Jesus' audience heard this the first time, it seems blasphemous. You want me to put others first? There's going to be a cost to this. I'm going to wind up at the back of the line. I won't be able to do what God has commanded me to do. You want me to put them before you? And Jesus goes, yeah, that's what I want you to do. Seems blasphemous until you realize that that's the way, uh, until you realize that the way you put God first, the way you love God is as you love your neighbor. The way you love God is to show the world who he is and how he loves by the way you love others, not by your gift in church. This is the new singular command of the new covenant. Love others the way I've loved you. And how did he love us? He went first. Rule number two. Let go. See, here's the thing in broken relationships. I've always playing around with this in my mind all week. What has happened anytime there's a broken relationship? I want you to think about that person in your mind, right? I know it wasn't your fault, but, but think about it. There becomes, because it wasn't your fault, a debt-debtor relationship. You hurt me. You disappointed me. I didn't raise you that way. You betrayed me. And, and what does that mean? That means because you've done those things to me, you now owe me. At very least, an apology, right? Perhaps some repentance, maybe some restitution. Whenever, friends, I want you to think this through, whenever a debt-debtor relationship exists in a relationship, right, there exists in that same relationship a sense of superiority of the debt holder, uh, of the debt holder over the debtor. What fuels broken relationships perhaps more than any other thing is that dynamic. I want you to think about this when you, when you go home today. Spend some time. I challenge you to reflect on it. It is really hard to stay mad at somebody that you don't feel superior to. Oftentimes, the minute we let the superiority thing go, the angrier and the resentment follow it out the door. What do I mean by, by this, right? Back to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians about reconciliation. There is a key to reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Here comes the key. That God was not reconciling to world, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us that message. Not counting people's sins against them. If you remember Paul, right, when he writes about agape and he writes it to the the church in in Corinthians, or in Corinth, right, he gives the definition of agape and love, and he says that God, who is himself loves, keeps no record of wrongs. And when we keep records of wrongs, what do we do? When we repeat the offense in our mind, when we keep holding it over somebody, what do we do? It continues to elevate us and lower them. Elevate us? I would never do such a thing. I would never say something like that. 
My child would never act like that. I could never possibly do what you've done to me. This constant elevation of myself, right? And Jesus goes, I, you know, why is it that you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but you have no concern about the log in your own? See, as soon as you start to embrace the concept of, well, I mean, I guess I, given the right set of circumstances, I could have. I guess I could see myself. I guess maybe when I look in my past relationships, I've done some stuff, too, that I'm not proud of and, and wish that I hadn't done. When you start to do that, something called humility starts to rush into your soul. And when a humility comes into relationships, relationships can get reconciled. And it's hard. This is why doing it is hard, because humility is not fun. Humility is like, oh, gosh, I guess I could have done that too. Right? You should go, right, to your brother. Be reconciled. Here, here's, here's what the scriptures say. In your relationships with one another, we've been quoting this verse. Here's the model. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now listen, we're talking about humility, right? And how it reconciles relationships. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Right? He didn't show up and go, let me show you all the things that you've done. Instead, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made a human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself this is the Lord of the universe. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the most shameful death, death on a cross. There's the model. And I have to ask you if Jesus was willing, perfect Jesus was willing to humble himself to reconcile a relationship with you. Why would you not be willing? Right? If Jesus is the perfect and, and offended party, and if he was willing to reconcile the relationship with you at the cost of the cross, what would keep you from humbling yourself and doing the same? Point three, and again, this is not a philosophy class, friends. These are actually things that you could do that would repair and restore and renew and reconcile relationships. We're supposed to not know these things, but do these things. Step one, you go. Number two, you let go, right? You let go of that superiority issue. You stop counting, rehearsing, rehashing the sins over in your mind. Number three, you cover the cost. The scripture uses this word here, cover, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. And it has to do with what we're to do with the sins of other people. The writer of the book of Proverbs, Solomon, supposedly, according to the scriptures, the wisest man that ever lived. Solomon said this, speaking of relationships, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers, love covers over all wrongs. Peter wrote about the same concept. Now, remember who Peter is. Remember who Peter, Jesus' closest disciple, right? Or, or at least his kind of primary disciple. And, and Peter, do you remember what, what Peter did on the night that Jesus was betrayed? He denied him, not once, not twice, three times. Like a middle school girl came and like accused him of being with Jesus. Oh, no, I don't know anything about that guy. Peter. Peter would know something, right, very personal about being reconciled in a relationship because he had been reconciled to Jesus in their relationship. Peter understood what had been extended to him. And so now he writes to followers of Jesus this. He says, the end of all things is near. And I, I just want to comment on that briefly. The end of all things is near. 
friends, life is short. There is nothing more valuable in your life than your relationships. And I am telling you, can I tell you this from personal experience? I have been in two rooms where somebody has died and people have fought with one another over the dead person's body. Twice. The end of all things is near. Time is short. And I'm telling you, the one regret you don't want to have when you're lying on your deathbed is I just wish, I just wish my son was here. Therefore, he said, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love covers sins. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that love just pretends that, you know, some families kind of have this dynamic, just pretends everything's okay, everything's fine, everything's fine, don't bring it up. That's not what that means. That, that's just fake, right? In fact, it can't mean that for a couple of reasons. The first is on multiple occasions, the scriptures in both the Old Testament and New Testament, Solomon in Proverbs tell us, tells us over and over that we should address sin. That's what love does, to tell the truth in love. So it doesn't mean we just repress it and we just fake peace. What cover means here is more like, you ever gone out to eat with friends? Six, eight of you at a table. You go out to a nice restaurant, right? Like it's splurge, somebody's birthday or something. They're all gathered around the table and everybody's eating. And it's one of those nights. And if you're cheap like me, I hate these nights. Because somebody orders appetizers, right? Then everybody starts ordering appetizers. And when you're cheap like me, what are you thinking? Oh boy. Right? I'm going to have to pay for this. Right? And then when you're cheap like me, you start going, well, why should I order the cheap appetizer? I don't have to pay for half of his anyway. I might as well get the clams too. Right? And so you order your appetizer. And invariably, somebody goes, you know what, I was just going to get a glass of wine, but why not a bottle? And a bottle of wine comes at a table. Six people, that lasts about 10 seconds. Another bottle of wine comes at a table. The entrees start getting ordered. Finally, you finish up, right? And you're going, oh, God, please, no. Because you see the waitress coming. And you know the question's coming. You know what the question is, don't you? Would anybody like any dessert? And I pray silently to me myself, God, no, please, no. <laughs> and of course, somebody always pipes up. You know, I was just going to have coffee, but if you all, would you, would you all like to get it? I'll get a dessert if you, if you want to get a dessert. Oh, for, oh. So everybody gets a dessert. And another half hour goes by, and I'm looking at my wife going, I told you we shouldn't have, why do you make me go to these things? And then here comes the bill. And you know when the bill comes, right? You're at one of those meals, and it's one of those restaurants. You know what we all do? We all start to go, oh, boy. Like, this is going to be a big one, right? And I'm sitting there. Everybody's starting to guess. What's the over-under on this thing? And you're just sitting there, and you're going, this, I, I owe so much right now. I'm really in trouble. And then somebody stands up at the end, at the end of the table and goes, you know what? Um, nobody worry about it. I'm going to cover the check. It's all on me. Don't worry about it. I got it. Now, I've never done this. <laughs> right? I'm unfamiliar with what, with what it feels like to, to offer that kind of cover. I've benefited from a, a time or two, though. And when you benefit from it and it's unexpected, ooh, right? You go home, you're smiling. Joni, I love our friends. 
We should go out more often, don't you think? <laughs> That's what the scriptures mean when it talks about you cover the sins of another, right? It's like I'm willing to take on the debt. I'm willing to accept the cost of the sin of another. What a blessing. To cover the cost uh, of another sin is to recognize it. It's not to pretend it didn't happen. It's to acknowledge, yeah, a debt has been incurred. They owe me something. They did something to me. I mean, at least an apology. They're, I'm due. I, I should be due some restitution. But I'm going to cancel the debt. I'm going to pay this time. In the scriptures, whenever it talks about forgiveness, that's what it means. It's almost always related to a financial transaction, in a sense. Trying to relate what Jesus did for us to some kind of financial transaction, right? To forgive, right? To forgive what it is that they owe you. You no longer insist on getting even or getting back or wishing for karma or hoping that they'll get theirs. Will it cost you something to cover somebody's sin? Of course I mean, at a minimum, it hurts. But I love what the writer of Hebrews, how he explained the concept. He said, I mean, think about Jesus. You want to talk about Jesus? says, oh, really? Would you like to tell me about the cost of covering somebody's sins? And the writer of Hebrews says, here's how Jesus did it. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy of a healed relationship, for the joy of knowing the pleasure of your Father in heaven, for the joy of knowing that your children see the healing in relationships and the world sees who Jesus is and how God loves them, for the joy of all of those things, covering the sins of another doesn't seem all that high a price to pay, does it? And so you go. You let go of the superiority. You embrace humility. You, you acknowledge that a debt has been incurred. You don't fake it. You cover it. And then, and then there's this last step here. Cover, uh, excuse me, overcome evil with good. You overcome evil with good. Super important final piece here. This is how Paul explained it. He goes, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. Don't take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge. I'll repay. You don't take God's job. On the contrary, he says, if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. A couple of powerful thoughts on this first. It is not just enough to say, uh, to say, well, I won't repay evil for evil. That's usually where we default, right? Well, I'm not going to get back at him. I'm going to forgive him. Fine, John, good talk, good talk. I'll go, I'll forgive. I just don't want anything to do with him anymore. But Jesus did not do that with us. And instead, he, he overcame, Jesus overcame evil with good. And that's what you and I are called to do with others who have hurt us, even our enemies. We actually proactively work. We do something for their benefit, for their good. We feed and love our enemies, not just in word, but in deed. And what happens when we do that? They change and we change. Their attitudes towards us change, and their attitude towards God changes as they see us do these things. And what happens to us? Our attitude towards them changes, and our attitude towards God begins to change. I say it over and over, don't follow your feelings, don't follow your feelings, follow the truth, your feelings will follow up. I'm going through a, 
a, a study on the, the fruits of the Spirit with a friend, and I came across this story this week. It's just such a good story. Newspaper columnist and minister uh, George Crane tells of a wife who came to his office full of hatred towards her husband. I do not, I do not only want to get rid of him, I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has. This actually happens. I've, I've seen this. Dr. Crane suggested an ingenious plan. He said, go home, and here's what you're going to do. Act as if you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be kind, considerate, and generous as possible. Spare no effort to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. And after you've convinced him of your undying love and you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Tell him you're getting a divorce. That'll really hurt him. Well, with revenge in her eyes, she smiled and exclaimed, beautiful, beautiful. Will he ever be surprised? And she did it with enthusiasm, acting as if for two months she showed love, kindness, listening, giving, re um, reinforcing, sharing. When she didn't return, Crane called and said, are you ready to go through with the divorce now? Divorce, she exclaimed, never. I discovered I really do love him. Her actions changed her feelings. Motion resulted in emotion. The ability to love is established not so much by, by fervent promise as oft-repeated deeds. You return good for evil. You overcome good with evil. Last point. You can do all of these things. And I want you to think of that person in your head. And maybe you've done all of them, right? Maybe you've done all these things and the relationship is still broken. And see, here's the thing. The Jesus model still covers that. Because Jesus has done every one of these things for everyone. For God so loved the entire world that he gave his only son. Jesus followed all of these steps and for many... Too many, the relationship is still broken. Just like God chooses to let us have free will in our relationship with him, just like he allows for us not to be reconciled if we don't want to be, we too have to allow for that same possibility. God does not control us, nor can we control others. Reconciliation can be offered, but not required. It can be desired, but never demanded. And that's why point five is this. You do your peace, and then you live at peace. When it comes to reconciling relationships, the scriptures are clear. That's what you do. Regardless of the outcome, you do your peace and you live at peace. This is why Paul told the church in Rome regarding these specific things. He said, if it is possible, what does that mean? It means that reconciliation is not always possible. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, and by far, I think he means far. You travel far towards reconciliation. You do for them what Jesus did for you. But in the end, once you have done all that you can do, when you have gone, when you have let go of the superiority, accepted the humility, understanding you're capable of doing the same and more, when you've canceled the debt and covered the sin, when you have loved with word and deed and overcome evil with good, then you can put your head on the pillow at night. And for the joy set before you, for the pleasure of your Father in heaven, you can know that you showed the world who Jesus is and how God loves them. Friends, that is it for this series. If nothing else, I hope you've sensed the importance of relationships in your life. I hope you will commit to them. I hope you will remodel them. I hope you will repair them. 
God made you and I for them. God exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the dance of love. Within the Trinity, he has invited you into that same dance to dance with him and others in this world and to continue that dance right on into the next. Towards that end, I want to leave you with a haunting image. A friend of mine posted it on on social media this week. A haunting image of the power of relationship, what you've been invited into. They're called the lovers of Valdaro. They're a pair of human skeletons dated as approximately 6,000 years old. This hug began long before Moses crossed the Red Sea. They were discovered in San Giorgio, Italy in 2007. Two individuals buried face to face with their arms around each other. They are a male and a female, no older than 20 years old at their death, approximately five foot two in height. And 6,000 years ago, they began to dance. And as I look at them, I can't help but hear the Apostle Paul, who would take a missionary trip to Rome and, and, and maybe went right by this city. It was only about 150 miles away from, Paul was only about 150 miles away from their grave. It's almost as if he knew they were there when he wrote this. Love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's stand and close the song.